Hello, and welcome to a special episode of HODLPAC's Crypto and Congress podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wordy. Instead of interviewing a member of Congress, today we'll be speaking with somebody with an insider perspective on the promise and potential of crypto, as well as its regulatory environment. As listeners here know, HODLPAC is a community-governed political action committee with the mission of supporting congressional candidates whose policies would promote the development of cryptocurrencies in the decentralized economy in the United States. Along with that mission, though, we also want to help bridge the gap between the crypto and public policy communities more generally. This means both helping policymakers in D.C. better understand this technological revolution, as well as helping those in crypto understand where policymakers are coming from. Our guest today is Jason Somansato, Senior Counsel at ZeroX Labs, the creators of the ZeroX Protocol. Jason is something of a translator in the ongoing conversation between builders in the crypto space and regulators in D.C., so I was very excited to speak with him, and I hope both communities can learn a lot from our conversation. So without further ado, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. As you know, Jason, you know, you're our first guest that isn't a member of Congress. I usually ask, you know, how they ended up in politics, but I guess instead I'll ask you, how did you make your way into crypto coming from a traditional law background? Yeah. Um, well, I think even though I might be your first non-congressional uh, member guest, my background is probably not too dissimilar. I am kind of a traditional DC-based lawyer. Um, but uh, yeah, so I spent over 10 years in private practice at uh, a couple different law firms. Most of my career was spent um, representing clients in front of the SEC or in white-collar criminal cases or in internal investigations. Um, and got into crypto pretty fortuitously back in 2014. Um, back uh, then, Coinbase was a much smaller company and was looking for its uh, third in-house counsel, and I was looking to transition into an in-house counsel position and didn't get the job there, but it kind of led me down a path to where I am today, where uh, I got really into the whole crypto ecosystem and, and learning about all the things being developed there and uh, just started writing some articles um, and doing some work with groups like Coin Center um, around the industry. Uh, ended up representing several clients over the years. And then in 2018, uh, through my connections with the folks over at Coin Center, was approached by the team at uh, Zero X, who was looking to hire their first lawyer. And so just a little under two years ago, I uh, started off with them. Um, and yeah, most of my background is in in securities laws type issues. But uh, I have almost been what I would consider exclusively a crypto lawyer for the last three or four years. For those who don't know, maybe for our non-crypto native audience, can you explain what 0x is and what it means to be a decentralized exchange protocol? Sure. Yeah. So I think... You know, the weird thing is 0x can be a lot of things and it's probably changed over time. But at its heart, the 0x protocol uh, is really just a technology that can be used to uh, facilitate peer-to-peer -peer trades of crypto assets. Um, so if your listeners are familiar with the concepts of behind Bitcoin, they kind of understand the idea of sending value sending bitcoins um, from one person to another without a central intermediary involved um, with something like ethereum which is zero x is a project that's built on top of ethereum right now um, there is the ability to 
build more complex systems. And essentially what Zero X tries to do is allow for peer-to-peer -peer exchange of assets uh, using an underlying smart contract protocol. Um, so that's kind of the protocol that our team developed over three years ago now. Um, but we at Zero X Labs uh, kind of also are trying to build a business on top of that protocol. And so, for example, we have a consumer facing product called Matcha that recently released um, that to your listeners will look like a normal web interface for something like a cryptocurrency exchange. But instead, when you perform a transaction, what it's doing is it's checking prices across um, the zero X network and across other uh, Ethereum decentralized exchange networks uh, and, and seeing kind of what are people offering for this, this asset. And then it will facilitate that peer-to-peer -peer exchange between uh, the person using Matcha and whoever the offering person is on the other side. So it's a little different than, uh, you know, a traditional financial product where there is an intermediary in uh, who sits there and kind of facilitates the exchange between the two. Instead, here, there's a technology that's fa facilitating those peer-to-peer -peer transactions. Okay, yeah, that's a great segue into another question I wanted to ask early on in our conversation today. So, you know, you're a senior counsel at ZeroX, which, as you said, is, is primarily concerned with building and maintaining the, you know, the ZeroX protocol. And you guys are also building products on top of that protocol. So, what does it mean to be, you know, in charge of building a protocol and, and how is that different than a traditional startup? Yeah, definitely. So I think it is, it presents a lot of unique issues and, and really requires almost like a different business model in a way. I think the easiest way that I've found to explain what it's like is kind of comparing it to other traditional technology protocols that people think of like the email protocol, right? People might not realize that the way email works is it, that all these clients like Gmail and Hotmail operate on top of a open source technology platform. Um, and in that way, there are kind of a lot of different contributors to the underlying code that makes up these platforms. And really all that's happening are the different businesses that are built on top are running that technology to allow you to send emails back and forth with each other. As a, as a company that's building a open source protocol like Zero X, so all of the work that we put out there is open source. So it's not, we're not a technology company that is trying to um, make money off the technology we create and license that out. And then similarly, as a, kind of an open protocol, the idea is you are not, you know, you're not a business. You're not taking custody of people's funds and then charging a fee. Instead, anybody in the world can take this technology and use it for purposes of facilitating exchange between two people. And so instead, what you have is a model that's usually built around uh, a token. And so Zero X is a, is a model where there is actually a token called ZRX involved. So then what is unique when there is a, a token involved is that the token is used to basically incentivize participation in the system, just like Bitcoin gives out Bitcoins to the miners who uh, support the system. In a, in a network like 0x, 
ZRX is is used as a way to incentivize people to come in and uh, make markets and provide liquidity into this peer-to-peer exchange network. And so as a lawyer for this group, you're one, you're thinking about, you know, what does it mean to you know, create open source technology that will allow people to facilitate financial transactions, which is a pretty new concept. Um, you're also thinking about, you know, what are the issues related to having this token? As, as your listeners probably know, there's a lot of legal issues uh, related to, you know, how do you classify these things? Um, and, uh, you know, interestingly, I think now there is a lot of competition in this space. And so there are a lot of people building protocols with different concepts in mind. So so Uniswap is a kind of well-known uh very a different version of a of a decentralized exchange protocol whereby it it operates based on what's called an automated market maker it's a little too complex to go into here but um there's kind of a vibrant ecosystem of people trying these new technologies and uh and you know we're really building both new technology and a new business model in this industry you describe this ecosystem sprouting up around the use of tokens, you know, to interact with these open source protocols, of which Zero X is an example. One corner of that ecosystem that's gotten a lot of tension as of late is referred to as decentralized finance or or DeFi. So, for another kind of maybe simple starter question, what is decentralized finance? Yeah, it's a really good, and it's a it's a difficult term to explain, and it's not the most descriptive term itself um because it's not always decentralized it's not always finance but it, it it's kind of the meme that's taken hold um so generally defi refers to um projects like uh the zero x protocol and other similar ones mainly on ethereum these days although it's possible to do it on kind of other blockchain networks um and what these projects allow for is kind of mimicking traditional financial interactions. So again, going back to Bitcoin being very basic, right? Being a, I'm able to send uh, my Bitcoin to you without an intermediary, you know, which is obviously intended to look a lot like cash, but our financial system is much more complex than that. Um, and you're seeing the early days of people mimicking traditional financial interactions. So things like lending, things like trading, um, even things like derivatives and leveraging this technology to allow people to uh, participate in that kind of uh, financial transaction without the involvement of a traditional centralized intermediary um, you know, holding funds or, or, you know, permissioning people to, to conduct these transactions. Um, so it's really taken off with uh, a lot of different projects exploring the different edges of, of what's considered DeFi. I would still say it's still very early days and it's very experimental at this point in time. But the exciting thing is there's a lot of white space out of there. There's a lot, you know, young developers can kind of be very creative and, and come up with something brand new. And uh, it kind of has the potential to to change the way that finance is done just in the way that, you know, the internet kind of changes the way the communication was done. You know, to double click on that last part of your answer there, what are some of the implications of DeFi? You mentioned that it does to finance what maybe the internet did to communication. That's a profound idea. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah. I mean, listen, again, I think it's early days. So a lot of this is predicting, right? But to use the internet as an analogy, right? When it first came out and people were writing blogs or, or sending emails, right? Those things looked like traditional communication, right? They looked like people writing articles in newspapers or people writing letters to their friends. Um, but that ability to kind of permissionlessly create communication has evolved to the point that, you know, now we're all pretty used to just pressing a button and having food delivered to our house by a third party, right? And all the payment happening in the background and a whole rating system. And then, you know, there's obviously a whole ecosystem on places like Twitter that have fundamentally changed the way we communicate. I tend to think we're kind of at that early stage with a lot of this stuff in, in DeFi, which is you have a lot of hobbyists who are kind of recreating what looks like traditional finance, right? Whether that's exchange on something like zero X, whether that's, you know, borrowing and, and, and supplying assets for, for borrowing through something like compound. Um, they, they mimic what looks like traditional finance. Uh, but you're seeing people push on the edges of, of what's possible. And you're seeing kind of the early days of what I would think, you know, will be a totally rethinking of finance um, where, you know, it's a system based on technology protocols um, and not necessarily a system based on, you know, banks that have uh, a regulatory moat around them permissioning people to get involved. So, you know, a lot of that is yet to be seen. And a lot of that's just my personal opinion. Um, right now, finance works pretty well for a certain class of people in the US. And so there's some question of how much better it needs to get. But I do think, you know, it's it's hard to stop the, the changes that come with technology like this. I think what you're talking about here kind of encapsulates the challenge that DeFi and maybe by extension, the broader crypto ecosystem has when it comes to the regulatory environment and that, you know, that might be kind of restricting some of the experimentation you're talking about. You know, we had Representative Bud from North Carolina on the show, and he laughed when I made a comment about, you know, quote unquote, traditional fintech versus crypto, because, you know, Congress is in some ways just now getting around to figuring out how to adapt to traditional fintech. You know, and then meanwhile, there's this whole new thing with crypto coming in behind it. So anyway, you know, I know you've been involved with advocacy efforts in D.C. You're based here and you've you've talked to congressional staff and regulators about DeFi and to, you know, to help them learn about it. What has that experience been like? Yeah, I think, well, one, it's really difficult. Um, I think, you know, even thinking back to what I just said over the last 15 minutes, I don't probably love the way I explained it. And I think there's always a new way people are working on explaining something like DeFi. I think, you know, the way I approach it with with regulators or with policymakers um, is really to think about, you know, these are not people who live in the crypto ecosystem like I do and speak that language. And so a lot of it is is understanding that they have other competing interests and demands and just trying to make it very simple. But uh, to be honest, the, the conversation has not extended uh, beyond much of a very basic, you know, hey, we're Zero X or we're, you know, the Blockchain Association and, and we, uh, you know, represent companies who do X, Y, and Z. And here's one example. Um, you know, it's still, it's still a niche enough uh, technology that I don't think it, it's it's demanded a lot of attention and people are very interested to talk about it. But uh, when I when it comes to describing it, 
you know, I recognize that that people probably aren't as going to be as interested in getting in the weeds as I am. And instead, they're probably interested in the in the policy and legal discussions that it creates, which are really difficult ones. And, you know, I think at least our approach is to go in there with a very respectful view of of what policymakers and regulators are trying to do um, more broadly with the financial system and not to try to, you know, break that and demand their attention. But um, the truth is, I feel like our teams can innovate uh, even at levels that are hard for me to to keep up with. And so um, I think it's really helpful to have platforms like these to, you know, spend some time explaining the basics. Uh, but honestly, it hasn't gotten too deep in particularly in something like DeFi. I mean, we're still explaining the basics of Bitcoin and crypto to, to most policymakers. So you alluded to some of the policy areas that regulators and lawmakers might struggle with or, you know, have questions about when it comes to crypto and DeFi. One of those areas is the treatment of tokens and the application of securities law that has received attention from Congress in the form of the Token Taxonomy Act, which is an attempt to kind of clear the way for some more experimentation there. But, you know, if you could just talk a bit more about some of these other areas that might exist and, you know, how you've seen them unfolded from your from your position in the industry. Yeah. Um, so I think you definitely put your finger on one of the biggest ones, right, which is around the categorization of these new forms of digital assets. Um, and I think the so so the main legal issue that most of the industry is dealing with is like whether these tokens of many of them are securities Um and the definition of a security in, in U.S. law is is very broad and kind of amorphous, and it's meant to be. It's supposed to uh, cover a lot of different facts and circumstances. But, and, and historically, I should say, I think there's a lot of things at play here beyond just crypto, right? Which is, you know, historically, those who invested in the securities markets were a pretty, you know, small group of people. People had a broker dealer who they personally knew who, you know, would be the one interacting with the markets. But, you know, even outside of the world of of crypto, you see things like, you know, Robin Hood and more direct access to markets. And you can see that there's a large demand for people to uh, participate in, in, in kind of speculative investment markets. And that's definitely true for crypto, right? Is there are large markets where people are interested in buying and selling these tokens as, as investments. Um, and speculating on their price. And so some of the early businesses that you've seen in the industry, like ours, is built around the ability to exchange tokens easily and to trade them at, at, at you know, different prices. And um, I think one of the hard parts is like, okay, well, are these things securities? And our securities law is very much based on the idea that, um, you know, a security was something where it was an investment in a specific team and the way that the law was designed to address the kind of information asymmetries between the team who you're investing in and the kind of passive investor is this disclosure regime and this permission regime where only securities can trade on certain platforms. And there's a kind of a couple of unique features going on in the crypto markets. One is that basically people can create new assets 
without any cost, really, right? Because this is technology, it is costless for any one of your listeners to kind of go on a website and create, you know, 100 JSON tokens and sell them. And so you kind of have an explosion of new tokens. So it's very hard to kind of stay on top of that industry. And then second, it's not exactly clear that, you know, in a lot of these cases, what you're investing in is the team itself, right? Instead, most of the people are trying to design some product that interacts with the token or the token might represent, you know, something else like, a, you know, something like a software license or a permission to vote in a certain network. Um, and there are hard policy questions around, you know, is the securities law regime the right one to regulate those markets? And I think the issue is that, you know, the SEC is kind of saddled with the existing definition of a security, which is very facts and circumstances based. Um, so it's really hard to kind of put out general principles. And you're seeing the market move extremely quickly to, you know, lots of tokens, um, lots of interest from people. And it's basically putting a pressure on kind of what we would think is the traditional regulatory regime to define, like, where are we going to divide the line between what's a security and what's a not? And does it make sense to kind of rethink that definition to provide more clarity to a market that is moving, you know, very fast. Besides the application of securities law, are there are there other sources of quote unquote regulatory uncertainty that, you know, people talk about in crypto? Um, yeah, I think so. Listen, I don't think that uncertainty is always something that requires regulators or the like to to get involved in and, and try to clear up because these industries move very quick. And so there is a kind of a fear of moving you know, too fast from a regulatory regime and kind of missing where the puck is going. I think the securities law issue one is unique because it's kind of played out over the last several years and we can kind of see where the industry has matured. And, you know, I think it is one that probably uh, is going to demand some kind of legal response or change at some point. Um, but there are other very unique issues presented by this technology that I don't know how much they require a change in the law, but they do maybe require kind of a change in how we think about, you know, certain issues. And so one I would definitely put my finger on is, is the ideas around anti-money laundering, because traditionally the way that we regulate anti-money laundering, and, and frankly, the way that seems accurate and correct to me, is to place compliance obligations on certain intermediaries in the system, right? Those who kind of take custody or or provide some kind of necessary customer support service um, to a user in order to uh, to kind of police for potential bad actors and to report that to the government. Um, the difficult part with cryptocurrency in general, and obviously with things like DeFi, where people can trade in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion, they can you know, borrow funds from a pool of funds without kind of ever relying on a traditional financial intermediary, is, you know, under current interpretations of the law, there's a good thinking that like, you know, the same AML obligations can't really fall on anybody. And I think that might you know, make some, particularly in DC, pretty fearful, um, you know, because we've kind of developed this idea that participation in finance is something that, like, you can only do when you've been cleared and you've shown your ID and, you know, and, 
and you can be cut off from the system. And, and just like the internet kind of created a world where we couldn't really permission who gets to communicate with each other, right? Like we kind of open that up to everybody. And, and I think most people would argue it's a, a net positive. I know there's definitely some difficulties and it requires some rethinking. I, I think something similar is happening with, with finance um, and it's spurred a lot by crypto, which is, you know, people are going to be able to use technology as a way to, to communicate and financially interact with each other and it's not going to be a situation where, you know, there's big Goldman Sachs or whoever in the middle to basically say, wait, I think this person is doing something inappropriate with their money. Um, and so I think we're going to have to kind of get ourselves comfortable with that because I think the net benefit of allowing a more open system like that is actually going to pay off dividends. And there will still be plenty of ability to uh, enforce bad act, uh, enforce laws against bad actors within the system. So it's an area where it's it's definitely testing kind of the traditional way that we think about that legal issue, though. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely harder for us to wrap your head around like what a permissionless, borderless financial system might look like, and you know, like what its implications are. Yeah, I mean, one way I'll think like you know, I don't think we think of Craigslist as some like incredibly pro, you know, technologically advanced jump in time or anything right but we kind of became comfortable with the idea that people can sell goods to anybody they want to on the internet right um they can find a, a willing buyer for uh their golf clubs for you know their furniture um and you can even build businesses around that concept and you know uh that peer-to-peer -peer system has kind of allowed people to to interact in a market in a much different way and crypto is basically doing the same thing. You know, it's just that ability to create a lot of digital assets means that people might be trading, you know, ZRX for comp token um, as opposed to, you know, golf clubs for cash. Right. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard people describe crypto as digitally native finance or, you know, meaning like how the Internet would want finance to be or how one would design a financial system from first principles like alongside the Internet, you know. And I think that's a pretty cool idea, and it, and it gets at some of the things that we've been talking about today, like specifically how crypto is different than traditional fintech. But yeah, you know, so we've talked about those differences. We've talked about how those differences might lead to regulatory frictions uh, or whatever you want to call them. But another aspect of this maybe is like a cultural clash. And, you know, this gets back to what it means to be like permissionless and open. How do you think about the culture of crypto and how it mixes or doesn't, you know, with traditional ways of thinking about finance and technology? No, I definitely think that's an accurate description. And honestly, it's probably one of the harder parts of of my job because, you know, I think there is kind of a room in the middle for a balanced uh, view on both of this. So I think on on one side, I think the industry has its roots in a very libertarian and very permissionless. Uh, and, and when I say permissionless, I mean being able to do things without the permission of the government ethos to it. And on the flip side, you know, we have a traditional financial system that is very much created in a world of, of guardrails and, you know, government registrations and, you know, honestly, in a way, a system limited to, to the wealthy in a lot of cases. And that being said, there are a lot of like, you know, there's a reason we have consumer protection rules and there's a reason we worry about some of these policy issues like money laundering. Um, but I guess my view is that like 
technological change is very difficult to stop. And this seems like a step function forward in technological change, you know, and it is kind of this digitally first native, you know, crypto native markets. And what it demands is a bit of a rethinking about how we approach, you know, at least that new form of financial system. And listen, it's not big enough yet to kind of demand all of the attention of the government and that kind of stuff. But we saw with the internet, right, it it did grow exponentially very quickly. And, you know, I think now we're looking at policy debates around large tech companies and really struggling with like, how are we going to approach this? And I think one of the things I would love to see with policymakers is, is taking this issue head on. And that's why it's great to have, you know, some of the people that Hodel Pack supports kind of trying to get in on this issue early, because I think it could change the way a lot of financial markets work. And on the flip side, then we can also start having a conversation with the industry of, listen, there's a reason for rules, right? There's a reason we, you know, we want to make sure there's not scams. We want to make sure that people's money is protected, that, you know, the, these technology protocols are safe. And I think we're just in the early innings of that conversation, but I think it's really about uh, kind of bridging that gap is, is the importance to, to getting to a, a healthier place in maybe the next decade or so. So we, we've mentioned things like the Token Taxonomy Act. We've also talked about the need to think about things like AML regulations. What are some of the other areas that Congress should be thinking about, be proactive in making sure that Americans have the ability to kind of like lead this technological revolution that we've been talking about? That's a good question. Um, I think, listen, I, I tend to think America is, you know, an ideal place for some of this, in part based on, obviously, like entrepreneurial, um, you know, drive of a lot of the people here and, you know, places like Silicon Valley and that kind of stuff that are always pushing to, to come up with the next thing. I also think, like, honestly, the, 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 the expectations around freedom of speech, um, actually help a lot here because although we're talking about a different form of finance in a lot of ways, it's just these digital communication layers that are, that are creating that finance. And so um, there's a good protection for, you know, the right for developers to, to code up projects the way they want to and the like. Um, when it comes to where I think, you know, policymakers can engage, man, I, I don't know if I have a, an easy answer on that. I, I listen, I've been heartened by every, regulator or policymaker who comes to the industry with a general respectful position, because I think one that makes people within the industry feel like they can have conversations with people like, you know, Commissioner Hester Purse at the SEC, um, like the members of Congress, like Representative Soto and Bud and others you've had on your program. Um, and so I think we're in a learning phase, basically. I think both sides need to do some learning. I think that, um, uh, so, you know, I'm basically here as a resource, hopefully to, to help with some of the education on the industry side, but I think, you know, the reach out to, to the, from the, from the policymaker side to the other side is also helpful. Um, I will say in terms of other just kind of unique areas where I would say people should be on the lookout and can probably be leaders. Um, obviously I think one issue that that's very hot right now is, is central bank digital currencies, right. And all this concepts around, what digital money is going to look like in the crypto world. There's, there's the concept of a stable coin, which is basically a digital asset that's pegged to the price of a dollar. 
um, that can kind of serve as a form of, of cash. Um, in, 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 you know, right now that cash is in crypto markets, but, but could be more broadly. Um, so I think those are kind of systematically important issues, right? People trading, you know, digital artwork is not as systematically important as people having a new form of digital cash. The other area where like, I just personally have a lot of interest is one of the things you're seeing in DeFi is a lot of experimentation also around kind of what the concept of a derivative is. Um, you know, I, I, we've been so bogged down in the crypto industry talking about securities because there's a lot of teams who issue tokens and, and, and use those as a way of kind of almost creating a business. But what you're seeing also in DeFi is, is an effort to kind of give people exposure to markets that they otherwise wouldn't through really unique um, token designs. And it's a little too difficult probably to go into here. But I think one of the ways you can think about it is like, listen, there is a large, broad global population that would love to, you know, be able to do things like, you know, invest in U.S. stocks or invest in, you know, some different form of, I mean, you can see it on Robinhood, right? People want to invest in a lot of crazy different things. And part of the way that people can make that accessible is, is creating tokens that kind of track the price of these things. Um, and so I think particularly when you look at overseas markets, you're going to see people um, jumping into some of these investment opportunities that look a lot like derivatives. And I think it could be an area where uh, kind of somebody who wants to be on the front lines of this uh, can, can kind of help set a position for what to expect. Because I think as we've all learned over the last few years, definitely, right, markets are just becoming more and more global in the idea of, you know, an independent U.S. market with its own rules separate and apart from, you know, an Indian market or, uh, you know, a Chinese-based market is, is kind of naive. And so really thinking about the cross-border issues on everything from digital cash, digital securities, digital, you know, um, derivatives, you know, and just the very unique nature of crypto, I think it's a real opportunity for anybody who wants to step up and, and learn and, and also reach out to the industry. Yeah, so I'd like to follow up on this idea, you know, that you touched on when you mentioned derivatives, that crypto and DeFi um, might be able to create new wealth building opportunities by making financial products like derivatives more widely available, other types of financial services as well. For example, you know, someone who doesn't have access to loans from the traditional financial system might be able to access them from, you know, a loan protocol in theory. And this idea that we need to encourage financial inclusion is something that I think unites both Democrats and Republicans these days. Broadly, how do you think about what decentralized finance might mean for financial inclusion? Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, I think it is, you know, probably the the, the brass ring or the holy grail of, of like what a lot of crypto projects are, are trying to achieve. I will say like even Zero X, it's founded with the idea that like, you know, most of our financial well-being is defined by the borders around where we were born, right? And and really trying to find a way to break down those borders. Listen, I think the hope is that just as anybody in a, a foreign country can kind of access the internet and communicate with the rest of the world, that by allowing um, for kind of open source protocols to be the way that you move money or to participate in the financial system, is that you know you empower kind of anybody with a smartphone to be able to participate in in these markets? You know, I will say it is very early in the and you know I think there are a lot of well intentioned teams that are kind of 
pushing along that route, trying to find ways to kind of open up the opportunities for a much larger population than already have access to the financial system. And I think the way that that plays out, you know, as I, as I mentioned, right, so when you're tokenizing something, right, there's a, you know, even the concept of a token, I think, is very difficult to understand. But basically what Bitcoin brought about was the way to create a digitally scarce asset, you know, using kind of cryptography and network incentives and Really, all that is going on is a network of people are sending messages to each other saying, you know, send to Bitcoin to, to Tyler from Jason to Tyler. And that communication is kind of processed by the network of participants to be valid. And so you are able to kind of create these these digitally scarce assets and without the need for, you know, big financial intermediaries involved. And so the idea that a country that is dealing with a dictator and, you know, or unfair capital controls in a certain country, right? There is a very promising idea. And you're seeing, I think, early signs of this with like Bitcoin and, and countries like Venezuela, um, where people say, hey, you know, I don't want to lose all my wealth. I don't want to be subject to the, the political system that oversees me on financial matters and I can opt into this system simply by utilizing this technology. And, you know, I think, I, I think that is ultimately a net benefit for everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if anything, the last, you know, hundred years have proven that like giving the more common individual access to uh, capital into the financial markets is is ultimately going to raise the standard of living for a lot of people. And there is a large percentage of the global population that just simply doesn't have any form of access to this. Now, I will say this is, we are a long way off from that from DeFi. Um, you know, we're mainly dealing with people because of the complexity of dealing with a system like Ethereum that, you know, are familiar with how the technology works um, are willing to kind of trust it. But I think one of the really difficult things is, you know, as, as, as a company like Zero X Labs, when we're trying to build a business, you know, we pay lawyers a lot of money to think about the various legal issues that impact the company. And we're so worried about tripping up, you know, U.S. legal issues that we don't even really have time to kind of like tackle, like, what does it mean to expand into a market like you know, Mexico or the like. So we, we recently released Matcha and we're seeing, you know, because it is just an internet web page that anybody can interact with. Um, we're seeing uh, early signs of use in some countries, you know, like in Latin America and the like. And we want to be in a position where we lean into that, right? Where we provide this as a service to as many people who, who can access it and who are interested. And so I think it is just one of those things that, you know, I think naturally over time, it's going to push the discussion about, how we regulate financial markets to a more of a global scale. It's already there very much, right? But I think it is also one of those areas where if we can can learn how to coordinate between countries and we can break down some of the barriers and that kind of stuff, we can we really see some of the the possibilities we can open up with, the, with technology like this. Very cool. And, and, you know, and something else you touched on earlier was this idea of the digital dollar, which is something that I've been asking members of Congress about on this show, because it seems to be getting a lot of attention in DC these days. And for sure, you know, it means different things to different people. There's this kind of muddling of concepts going on. And, you know, some people mean retail accounts at the Federal Reserve, or even just like dollars loaded onto debit cards when they talk about a digital dollar. 
for for people in crypto, it means something completely different. You know, I think people in crypto think of a tokenized kind of programmable asset with open standards, uh, which is which is decidedly different than retail accounts at the Fed. How do you think about as somebody in the industry? How do you think about this like broader conversation around central bank digital currencies? Yeah, I mean, I think. Listen, first off, I think it's fascinating, right, that we're at this point. So I am the the son of a of a World Bank economist. You know, my dad spent over 35 years with the World Bank dealing with issues all around, you know, central banks and how they interact with their countries. Um, and the idea that, you know, we're at a stage where we're kind of rethinking money is is fascinating and i would also say it's it it should be the ultimate sign that like you can see how powerful an idea like bitcoin was right because i do think bitcoin's introduction and adoption is a large reason that a lot of these you know discussions are happening right just the idea that we can figure out a way to use technology to send and create dollars without necessarily having the same types of intermediaries that we traditionally had. That being said, obviously there are, you know, a lot of different interpretations of what a digital dollar looks like. And, you know, not all of them are really crypto related in a meaningful way. You know, they just might be adding a a slightly more functional technology later on what's already there. I think, you know, where I net out on all of this discussion is is kind of one that I think anybody within the cryptocurrency ecosystem probably shares, which is like when we're talking about money, it is really important to find a way to give people autonomy and ownership over that asset, right? That sounds so basic, right? But even for somebody like me, I was recently in some situation where I needed to get cash out, you know, and just the sheer fact that I'm getting charged like ATM fees and, you know, all of that issue to get my own money, it just feels wrong, right? It feels like you're getting played by the system and that we can do it better, right? And part of that is, is giving autonomy back to people, right? If it's their cash, it's, it is their assets, right? It's not something that the government or a financial institution gets to kind of stand in the way of. And so I think in all of these discussions, what what I like is it's making us think about those issues. It's thinking, you know, uh, one of the really good commentaries I heard, I think from one of the folks at Coin Center recently was like, I don't think we realize how important cash was through the history of, you know, the U.S. economy until more recently, right? It kind of went away in the last 20 years with the advent of technology and like everybody using, you know, intermediated things like PayPal or their bank to, to use money that we started seeing, you know, what were the benefits of the cash system that we want to hold on to. And so I think, you know, and I think crypto plays a role in, in, in promoting some of those ideals. So I, you know, my dad will listen to this section of the podcast and be pretty upset that I don't probably explain uh, central bank digital currencies in a way that uh, he would he would think that they should be explained or or dealing with all the really fascinating economic issues that come along with that. But from my perspective, it's it's encouraging to see as a as a discussion because I think technology is always driving 
these issues forward. And I think it's really a good opportunity to, to, to discuss that point I made about like, you know, making sure we're not standing away of people, you know, accessing their own money, which is a, is a tricky problem. Cool. You know, well, for your dad's sake, maybe you'll have to come back on and, and do a deep dive on, on uh, central bank digital currencies sometime. But for our last question this time, I guess, do you have any parting words for our listeners, you know, maybe for any congressional staff or policymakers that might be listening? Yeah, I think like, you know, it's probably parting words for, for the larger population at whole too, which is like, let's try to all keep an open mind about what other people are interested in and are doing. There is, I think, a lot of inherent skepticism and criticism of the crypto industry. And I think some of that is warranted, right? There are people who, you know, when you're talking about new permissionless systems, try to take advantage and, and create get rich quick schemes or, or scam people out of money. And we even saw that with, you know, kind of the Twitter hack the other day. But there's also a very real group of people and they're not all on Twitter or, you know, they're not all the most vocal people. I mean, Zero X Labs is a company of 40 people who are very smart and uh, well-meaning and interested, you know, engineers and product managers who are trying to build something that they think is really cool. And, you know, treating those people with the respect and then, you know, the the the. The other angle of that is the same, right? Which is the industry obviously takes a very skeptical look of government and, and, you know, what it's trying to do and how it does it within the financial system. But, you know, trying to meet it on its terms and understanding that, you know, members of Congress have have uh, constituents who are worried about issues from, you know, foreign financing of terrorists to, you know, uh, crypto scams involving, you know, the elderly to a bunch of different things that they're trying to weigh. Um, and hopefully that leads to kind of just a healthier discussion between both sides as to like, what are we going to do with the future of this tech? Cause I don't think the tech is going away. So I guess my final words are, are, are like, I hope everybody can kind of keep an open mind and, and kind of just think about like how previous cycles have played out where like technology is going to happen. So let's have a discussion about how that should happen in a responsible way. That is a great way to end. Jason, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks so much, Tyler. This was great. Thank you for listening to Crypto in Congress presented by Holdapack. If you'd like to learn more about Holdapack and our mission, check us out at www.holdapack.org or follow us on Twitter at Holdapack. Also, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get exclusive updates and access to transcripts from each episode. We'll see you next week for another special guest interview with Holdapack board member and general counsel at Compound Labs, Jake Travinsky.